there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. I'm going to lay a foundation in this Bible study hour that I'm going to build on later this morning, tonight, Monday, Tuesday. In fact, I'm going to preach to you for the next three days from the same place in the Bible. Now, when I say place, I don't mean the same scripture. Literally, physically, geographically, from the same place in the Bible. Years ago, I started making a study of Bible geography. I don't know if you like geography or not, but it always has interested me. But when you come to Bible geography, that's a whole other level because every place takes on new significance when the Lord shows up there. So the places that are mentioned in Scripture are of, of tremendous note, not because of the place, but because of the person. Not because of the where, but because of the who. In other words, when the Lord steps into a place, when God does something significant in that place, it is a point of emphasis for all of us in the future. With that in mind, I want you to open your Bible to the book of beginnings, to the book of Genesis. Right now on our Enjoying the Journey, Enjoying the Journey daily podcast, we are studying through the first 11 chapters of the book. And there's a reason for that because Genesis 1 through 11 has been called the seedbed of doctrine meaning that all the great teachings of the Bible are found introduced at least in seed form in the first 11 chapters. I want to draw your attention in this hour to Genesis chapter 12 because when you come to Genesis 12, you begin a section of this first book of the Bible that deals with really the main characters of the Old Testament, the patriarchs we call them, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and their descendants. And when you come to Genesis chapter 12, we're, we're dealing here with God's dealings with Abram. In fact, you'll notice the opening phrase, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, it is the old name. He is not yet Abraham. Uh, Abram means high father. That's, that's what, what he was. That's how people regarded him. God's going to change him. Aren't you glad God changes us? God's going to change him to Abraham. When God changes a name, it's because God's changing in their nature. And Abraham means a father of a multitude. I like this. God said, it's not about you getting bigger. It's about me getting big through you. It's not about you going up, high father. It is about me working through your life to touch many people. And I would say it wasn't just the nation of Israel. He is the father of all those who walk in faith in God, which means that our lives have been blessed because of what God did in the life of this man Abraham. And in Genesis chapter number 12, you come to verse number 6. Abram is making his journey. And the Bible says, Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, 
who appeared unto him. You might want to mark in your Bible, verse number 7, he built an altar. He built an altar. First thing he does, first place he goes. We'll come back to this particular place a little later. What's he do? He builds an altar. You know what I think sad? I think it's sad that some people build a house, build a business, build a family, build a name, build a retirement, and never learn to build an altar. May I say to you, if you build a city, but you never learn to build the altar, you have failed. You see, you do not measure the success of a man's life by what he accomplishes in the eyes of men. You, you connect the success of his life to this. Did he have contact with God? Was God big in that man's life? And so, what's he do first? He builds an altar. Look at verse number 8. He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there, read it aloud with me, church, he builded an altar unto the Lord. Would you mark it? Verse 7, builds an altar. Verse 8, builds an altar. He builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now, I want you to take your pen, and I want you to circle in verse number 8. Twice we have this name, Bethel. That's the place we're going to camp. That's where we're going to pitch our tent and build our altar this week. We're going to visit Bethel. Uh, last year, a little over a year ago, we took a Bible study tour through the land of Israel. We're planning another one, praying for the peace of Jerusalem and uh, waiting for everything to settle down over there, of course, but we're already making plans to take a group of people there because there's something really fascinating about studying the Bible in the land of the Bible. You don't have to go there to understand the Bible, but it's like reading it in black and white and then seeing it in living color. You, you begin to see what you have read. And uh, some of these places now, because of technology, you can go to online. You can, you can visit pictures and video and tours and that kind of thing. Bethel is a very interesting place. We'll find out later today that it originally went by another name, but it is now called Bethel. And interestingly enough, I'm in lots of churches that are called Bethel Baptist Church. Have you ever heard of a Bethel Baptist Church? And they've chosen that name because Bethel means house of God. Bet is house, El God, it is the house of God. Now, most of the time people say, well, we're, on Sunday we're going to the house of God. You ever hear somebody say that? Now, this is the meeting place for this local New Testament church. But I want to just remind you of something. If this building burnt to the ground, this church would still very much be alive. Because God doesn't dwell in physical buildings. You don't, you don't come to this place because this place is the house of God. Watch this. If you're a believer, God lives inside of you, and when you show up here, that's what makes it the house of God because God is wherever his people are. The great thing about God being with his people is that though we assemble and meet and pray and study and teach and observe the ordinances and all of that, and we should do all of those things together corporately. This is beautiful. God is with you wherever you go. That is why in every place where Abram went, he builds an altar, he acknowledges the presence of God, and the Lord who said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, I'll be with you to the ends of the earth, still does that for his people. 
But Bethel is very important for this reason. It is symbolized every time you see it by an altar. We call this area, oftentimes in a church, an altar because we invite people to come and pray. And an altar is a place where things die. An altar is a place of sacrifice and surrender. And it's also a place where things live. Now, this is an Old Testament altar, not a, not a New Testament altar. But the altar symbolized always the place where you meet with God. Would you write this down somewhere in the margin of your Bible? Law first mentioned, that's where we are in Genesis chapter 12. From the beginning, Bethel was always known as a place of prayer. Can I tell you what God honors? He honors people of prayer. May I tell you the kind of church God really touches? People of prayer. We meet for meetings like this, special meetings, and I think sometimes there is so much emphasis on the preacher that we forget that the great thing is the prayer. Now, I'm the preacher this week, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to stand and preach the Bible to you. But if you think for a minute God's going to touch this meeting, touch this church, change your life because of a preacher. You, you've missed the whole thing. You don't need a man. You need God. You don't even just need Abraham. No, no, you need Abraham's God. It's not the house of Abraham. This is the house of God. This is not where we meet with men. This is where we meet with God. Every time you hear the name Bethel, you ought to see an altar. Every time you hear the word Bethel, you ought to think, I need to pray. Now, Bethel was about 10 or 11 miles north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's famous. Everybody thinks about Jerusalem. Everybody wants to go to Jerusalem. Every religious group in the world wants to control Jerusalem. Everybody wants to talk about Jerusalem. But please don't miss this. Every good thing God was going to set in motion that was going to come to fruition in Jerusalem began in the place of prayer. You don't enjoy Jerusalem apart from Bethel. You don't enjoy all the blessings of God and fulfillment of the promises apart from somebody believing God and obeying God and seeking God and knowing God and communing with God. And that's why you must begin at Bethel. This is not my emphasis. This is one of God's great emphasis. Did you know Bethel is mentioned 60 times in the Bible? 60 times in the Old Testament. Did you know it is connected to 30 different stories or prophecies in the Scripture? Let that sink in just a minute. It is the second most mentioned place in the Old Testament, second only behind the city of Jerusalem. It's almost like God wants us to think about Bethel. And so this week, by faith in our hearts and minds and our study of the Word of God, I want us to visit this place, not because I just want you to learn something about Bible geography. I want you to learn something about the God of Bethel. And when we're done, I want you to learn something about what it means to meet with God every day of your life, to be people of the altar. So what do we learn beginning at Bethel? May I just give you a handful of observations from the, from the first mention of Bethel? Write them down somewhere. Get your pen out and get you something to write on, and I want you to write them down so you'll meditate on them this week. Number one, if you're going to begin at Bethel, you have to understand that Bethel was a place of faith. 
everything God sets in motion in our lives begins with faith in God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God, Hebrews 11 verse 6, must believe that he is and that he's rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What, what is the great message of the Bible? The just shall live by his faith. Well, what did Jesus stress to his disciples? Have faith in God. What does John write in the New Testament? This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. I want you to know that every time God sets something in motion in a place or in a people, it always begins with somebody believing God. I'd like to ask you something. What are you believing God for right now? I must tell you, I think one of the saddest things I'm observing in my travels in and out of good churches, I'm talking about doctrinally sound, orthodox, fundamental churches, is a lack of faith. I'm starting to understand that scripture, when the Lord comes, shall he find faith on the earth. And we call ourselves people of faith, but I must tell you, increasingly, I'm hearing even God's people speak in unbelief. All we can do is talk about how bad it is and how dreary it is and how awful it is and, and how the world's deteriorating and all along. Wait a minute. Where are the people having faith in God? Where, where are the people that believe God still answers prayer and the Lord is still at work and Christ is still building his church and the gospel is still the power of God in the salvation? Where are the people of real faith in God? And remember, Abraham is the father of the faithful. And from the very beginning, it must be by faith. We walk by faith and not by what? All right, so look at it carefully, please. In verse number 6, when he's making his journey, the Bible's careful to tell us that the Canaanite was in the land. So in verse number 6, there's sight. You know what Abraham could see? Enemies. <laughs> Lots of enemies. By the way, you live by sight, all you'll see is the enemies. You live by sight, all you'll see is the Canaanite. You live by sight, all you'll hear is what they talk about on the evening news. That's all you'll know because you're living by sight. Somewhere you've got to get beyond sight. You've got you to look through the eye of faith and the lens of the word. You've got to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, looking at a Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When you come to verse number 7, the Lord shows up. I love this. The Lord appeared. Let's take a survey. How many of you would like God to show up, yes? How many of you think it would be really exciting if the Lord showed up physically today? That may happen, by the way. A trumpet could sound, Jesus could step out in a cloud, and we'd all be out of here. That will be sight. Faith will be sight then. Don't miss this. Look at it carefully. In verse number 6, he sees the enemies. In verse number 7, he sees the Lord. Somebody said, great. But then notice in verse number 8, God moves him from Sychem to Bethel, he moves in the place of sight to the place of faith. Look carefully at verse number 8 and tell me, is there any reference in verse number 8 to a vision? Any reference in verse number 8 to sight? Any reference in verse number 8 to the Lord appearing to him? The answer is no. Please don't miss this. He built an altar when he saw, but he also built an altar when he could not see. When you get to verse number 8, he doesn't see the enemies. He doesn't see the Lord. But what does he do? He builds the altar and prays to the invisible God, believing that God is there and God is going to hear and answer his prayer. 
No man has seen God at any time. God's a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm going to tell you what we need. We need some of God's people to stop living by sight and start living by faith again. And a fresh visit to Bethel reminds us that God is always bringing us to the place of faith. 47 years of age. Our kids are grown now. We have our first grandchild. Man, I've joined the happy club, let me tell you. I got lots of pictures if you'd like to see them after church. Lots of pictures. But at this juncture in my life, I'm starting to realize something. God is always going to give you something you have to faith him for. I used to think, you know, you trust Jesus for salvation and you trust God for a spouse. You trust God to raise your kids and you trust God for your life's work and you trust God. You know what I'm talking about, the big decisions you think. And you think, well, if I can just get past that. Have you ever said that in your home? If we can just get beyond this, if we can just work through this, if we can just get an answer to this, I hate to bust your bubble, but I'm just going to tell you that the rest of your journey is going to be a faith journey. There's going to be crossroads and intersections and decisions and times you need direction, and you are never going to outgrow faith. Your faith has to keep growing because at every juncture on the journey, God's going to give you something to trust him for. Did you know the thing you're complaining about right now may be God's gift to you and the means by which God is teaching you to trust him again? I think sometimes we're praying God will take away things that God has actually given to us as messengers to remind us we need God. You know what Bethel is? It's a place of faith. Oh, that's not all. Right now, the second thing. This place, this place of the altar, this house of God, this place of prayer is also a place that affected his family. Don't miss this. It's never just about you. Could I ask the men in this room to look at me for just a moment? I want you to understand something, gentlemen. God has assigned to you, to us, a holy obligation do you understand your children call you father? They may call, say papa, they may say daddy, they may say dad, but they call you father. You understand God shared his name with you? That what your kids think of the heavenly father, they're supposed to see in their earthly daddy? Do you understand, according to Ephesians chapter 5, that your love for your wife is supposed to represent Jesus? Love for the church? Calvary love, the cross love, sacrificial, giving love. Now you're supposed to represent the love of Jesus in your home? Ladies, do you understand that the greatest beauty of all is the beauty of God on a person's life, that the, the Lord has made it so that in our homes and through our homes, his image, his glory is to be reflected in such a way that people want to know our God? I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's not just about you. It's not about you being happy. It's not about you getting your way. It's not about you getting to do everything you want to do. It is this. God wants you to come in such vital contact with him that through your life, other people will come in vital contact with God. So Abram has faith, good. And he's believing God for his family, good. They're going to have to learn to believe God. See, you can't believe God for others. They've got to believe God for themselves. Faith is always a personal thing, but it gets set in motion somewhere. Somebody has to exercise their influence to point people to the Lord, and that's what Abram did at Bethel. 
Let me have you mark two things. In verse 8, would you mark his tent? Now, that may seem like a just an incidental thing, but nothing's incidental in the Bible. His tent. He pitched his tent there. And mark it, please. He pitched his tent, built an altar. Pitched his tent, built an altar. Say that, please. He pitched his tent, built an altar. Tell your neighbor. Ready? He pitched his tent and built an altar. What's the two things, class? He pitched his tent and built an altar. Matthew Henry said this, Everywhere man has a tent, God should have an altar. Let me tell you what it means. It means wherever you live, the presence of God should be there, and God should be acknowledged in that place. You, you may have an apartment, a trailer, a house, uh, a shack. It doesn't matter. Wherever you happen to pitch your tent, just remember, it's just a tent. It's always temporary. You're pulling up stakes. We're moving up very shortly. But wherever your tent happens to be, there ought to be an altar there where you meet with God. I'm not suggesting you have to physically go build a physical altar. Christ is our New Testament altar. He's the sacrifice for sin. He's, he's the end of, of all the religious formalities. But let me tell you this, there ought to be some place where you meet with God in your home. There ought to be a time when you pray with your family. Have you prayed with your family recently? When was the last time your spouse heard you pray? When was the last time your children heard you call their name to the Heavenly Father? Have they? They should. Shouldn't be a strange thing for Christian people to talk to God. It should be strange if we do not. People think this is the place of prayer. Friend, this isn't the place of prayer. Your home is where it all gets set in motion. That's holy ground. Let me tell you how to be sure that the church family is always a, a people of prayer. Let your family be a people of prayer. People say, we've got to get to church on Sunday. Boy, we need to pray. I'll tell you how to be sure you're on praying ground when you get here. Start praying before you get here. And you know what it'll do? It'll affect your family. See, none of us are better Christians than the Christians we are in the privacy of our own home. It affected his tent. By the way, Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 9, talks about this very section of Abram's life. And it says that he dwelt in tabernacles or tents with, anybody remember? With Isaac and with Jacob. That's his son and his grandson. You know what that means? That means his boys were living in that same tent with him. And when they were living in these tents with him all through his journey, though not chronologically at this particular instance, but all through his journey, if they were in the tent, they saw the altars. If they were living with their daddy on this nomadic journey through the wilderness through these decades, they heard their daddy pray. Mark a second thing. Back up to verse number 7 and mark thy seed. Because his faith, his prayer, not only affected his present family, his immediate circle of influence, it affected future generations. Do you understand that everything God had planned and all that Abraham desired from God and all that the nation needed and all that his descendants would, would absolutely have to have from God hinged on what happened at Bethel? Eldon Paul, he's been with the Lord a long time now. He died when he was 57. I was not even born when he died. But he was a man of faith in God, a man who walked with God, loved the Lord. He died early, really, by man's standards. And he, he left three pennies. That's, that was the sum total of the family inheritance when he died, three pennies to his name. But he left much more than that. He left a legacy of faith 
that I am the blessed beneficiary of. And you don't know him, but you're listening to me today because that man of faith affected my life. And I'm telling you something, people. If, If God tarries the coming of his son for us, there are going to be future generations sitting where you're sitting right now. There's going to be a church here. We pray to God, always a gospel witness till the trumpet sounds, that are going to be affected, good or bad, rightly or wrongly, by the faith or the unbelief of God's people in this place. You don't see all the answers to prayer now. And you don't see all the answers to prayer here Think about the answers to prayer. We're going to meet someday at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus at the throne of God in eternity. And all of that set in motion in the place where men meet with God. Mm. Let me give you a third thing. It was not only a place of faith and a place that affected his family, but number three, it was a place to go back to when he failed. Did you know everybody's a sinner? Everybody. We're just a bunch of dressed-up sinners today. That's what we all are. You're listening right now to a certified sinner. That's what I am. And so are you. And even Abram, that great man of faith, was not a perfect man. He was a sinful man. And he had periods of lapses of faith. See, you think great faith means always strong. No, no, he had lapses of faith. And he had periods of disobedience. And he had seasons where he wasn't exactly where he needed to be. Don't miss this. We read verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. And man, you stop there. It's like so far so good. Look at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. Famines always come. Problems do come. And Abram went down into what? Egypt to sojourn there. Oh, Time out just a second. I thought Egypt... I thought Egypt in Scripture is always representative of worldliness. It is. In fact, God's people are admonished in Scripture, don't you lean on Egypt. Don't you depend on Egypt. I know the famine's bad. I know. I know the need is great. I know you're worrying about the future. I know you're wondering how you're going to pay your bills. But don't you go down to Egypt and rest on the world. The world cannot meet your needs. The Lord can. But even Abram, that great man of faith, went down to Egypt. If you read the verses that follow, he lies. What do you think about that? I'm talking about a guy who left Ur of the Chaldees and stepped out on nothing but the promise of God. I'm talking about a guy who built an altar everywhere he went, and then you find him in Egypt, and what's he doing? He's lying. said his wife was his sister and lives in deceit and guile. God has to discipline him and spares him in grace and mercy and brings him up out of Egypt. May I just ask... How many of you saved people in here have ever been away from God? Would you raise your hand, please? I'm going to let you in a little secret. Whether you realize it or not, we've all been away from God. See, Egypt isn't always getting out of church. In fact, I think sometimes the worst prodigals are the ones who never leave the house. They sit in churches like this all of their life, and they think they're good to go, you know, all is well because they happen to be in this place. But listen to me, you can be here and not be where you need to be with God. And Abram failed. He just miserably failed. He blew it. So I guess that's the end of the story of Abram. No, we're just getting started with the story of Abram. Turn one page. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. Time out. Look at me just a second. Can I give you just a little footnote here? He's very rich, but the riches don't matter without the presence of God. 
In fact, this same thing will be said of Jacob, his grandson, when he goes back to Bethel later. When he goes back to Bethel, he's very rich too. Who cares how much money you have, how big the house is, how long the vacation is, how great your retirement is looking, how well your stocks are doing. Who cares about all of that if you are poor in the presence of God? So where does he go? Look at verse 3, and he went on his journeys from the south even to where, please? Bethel. Unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Would you mark verse 4, unto the place of the altar? Remember, it's always the place of prayer, the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. I'm, I'm thinking now of that great admonition to re- return to your first love. Oh, Lord, bring us, bring us back to first love. Bring us back to the place of the altar. And there, Abram called on the name of the Lord. The just man falls seven times and riseth again. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't tell me you don't have anything to confess. We come even to special meetings, and people say, well, I hope she gets right with God this week. Boy, I'm glad he's hearing this. He really needs this message. Hmm. Speak to me, Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Can I tell you where God always leads you to? He leads you back to Bethel. You begin at Bethel, and there are new beginnings at Bethel. Look, the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Aren't you glad that the God of beginnings is the God of new beginnings? Sure he is, over and over. I, I Look, I'm testifying now of the mercy and grace of God in my life. And all of us, you want to have a real spiritual awakening, a real revival? Then get a new beginning with God. Get a new beginning in prayer. Get a new beginning in meeting with God. Go back to the place of the altar and say, Lord, I failed you in faith. And I failed to obey as I ought to. And I haven't been perfectly honest like I ought to be perfectly honest. But I want to be as near to God as I possibly can. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Notice a couple things here when he returns to Bethel. What does he find? He finds the same God is there. Would you do this? Go back to chapter 12. Now, stay with me just a second. Go back to chapter 12. And in verse 7 and verse 8, I want you to mark the name Lord. It's twice in verse 7 and twice in verse 8. Lord, 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 Lord. And when you come to chapter 13, look, please, the same name is used at the end of verse 4. He called on the name of the Lord. It's the same God. In your Bible, look at it. In your Bible, is it all capital letters, yes or no? It should be, all caps, L-O-R-D. That is not just the way the Bible printer decided to do it. Every time you see all caps Lord in your Bible, that was the name for Yahweh. That was the name for, for Jehovah God, the covenant name. I love this. The God who makes promises and always keeps his promises. Who always fulfills what he foretells. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Do we fail? Yes, but God never fails. And when you return to the Lord, what do you find? The great God of heaven is right where he always was, and he is waiting on you. Oh, there's something else. Look at it carefully. Not only do you see the same God, but you see the same great need. Do you you see what he did in chapter 13 that he did in chapter 12? He called on the Lord. 
You might mark that, that word. He called on the Lord. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You know what we need? We don't need better sermons. We need people calling on the Lord. And here's what I know. If you'll call on the Lord, God always answers when you call. So what do we learn beginning at Bethel? Let's review just a second. We know it's a place of faith. We know it's a place that affected his family. We know it's a place... Uh, that he returned to after he failed. But let me give you one more. Number four, write this down, please. We also know it was a place from which he went forward. Did you ever notice that every time he visits Bethel, God shows him the next step and advance him on his journey? I'll prove it to you. Look at chapter 12. In verse 8, he goes to Bethel. He builds the altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. Look at verse 9. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Dear Lord, help us go on this week. Would you like to go on with God? Anybody here like to go on with God? Would you like to know the next step? Would you like to follow a little closer to Jesus? Would you like to move further forward in all God has for you? It begins at Bethel. When you come to chapter 13, he returns to Bethel. And when you come down to the end of chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said unto Abram, and God begins to speak to him and give him direction and show him the next step. Please don't miss this. It's only when you meet with God that you can learn to move forward. There are people in this room right now trying to figure out how to get past your past. I'm going to tell you how. First, you've got to meet with God. There are people in this room trying to figure out the next step for your family, next step for your life, uh, next, next step in this church. I'm going to tell you, the only way you can do that, first, you've got to meet with God. How, do, how does a Christian move forward? Would you like to know? We move forward on our knees. Somebody says, I want to walk with God. I want to run the race. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. Because it's at the altar in the place of prayer at Bethel where God lets us begin again. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.